Before I start the show today, just want to say to all the listeners who are joining us from Bitter Southerner this week, hey y'all, welcome to the show. We debuted on February 26th of 2019, exactly 43 years after the day a judge sentenced Charles Wakefield Jr. to death in the South Carolina electric chair. This is our 17th episode. We've produced Murder, Etc. with the intention of our listeners starting with episode one, titled January 31, 1975. If you start there and work your way forward, everything is going to make a lot more sense, or as much sense as any of this story can actually make. Now, here's episode 17. We're calling it Greenville. We have a problem. In 1975, there was a man in Greenville, South Carolina, named Thomas Ray Hamby, known to his friends simply as Ray. If you met him, you'd remember him. He was a pretty smart fellow, but he was had a loose screw somewhere or another. If you talk to the people who remember Ray, they'll tell you, Hamby didn't just walk that fine line between crazy and genius. Ray Hamby was that line. 80-year-old Leonard Brown was a burglar alarm entrepreneur and a two-time candidate for sheriff in the 1970s. And of the thousands of things and hundreds of people he remembers, Ray Hamby stands out. Because that's what Ray Hamby did. He stood out. Brown remembers Hamby inventing a device to help people protect their cars during the 1970s gas crisis. So they had a lot of people stealing gas, you know, because, you know, the service stations just closed up when they got out of the gas. They made these little old things you put down in the tank. It was a stiff wire, was coiled, and it got smaller as it went down. So you could put your gas thing in there and fill it up with gas, but you couldn't get a hose down to suck out the gas. Sold them for a dollar a piece. He made some kind of little machine to wind them around. Brown says Hamby sold them as fast as he could make them. But Hamby's next memorable invention, well, he didn't design it for a gas tank. The next thing I remember about him, he was t- had this motor home and he was telling me about making this sex machine and he was gonna sell it to the prisons. You heard that right. And I said, I don't know if we'll buy that, Ray. I mean, it- a sex machine. Hamby planned to sell a sex machine to the women's prisons. So he had some kind of jigsaw. He made it and made a saddle like a horse saddle. <laughs> had a penis on it and a jigsaw, you turn it on, it jig up and down, you know? <laughs> that sounds like something out of a Coen Brothers movie. That's because you might have seen something just like it in a Coen Brothers movie, Burn After Reading. George Clooney's character created a similar device. But Ray Hamby was no George Clooney, and he couldn't find a buyer at the women's prison. So, always the enterprising entrepreneur, Hamby shifted gears. His first step, offer, a reward. Yeah, he was offering, offering a reward for any woman to stay. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was offering $1,000 or some big fee. If it wasn't already obvious, now would be the time to press pause. Send the faint of heart, children, and anyone with a sense of decency out of the room. He decided he would get some woman to put on a show with it, you know. So he hired some fella and his wife. And then go off to a bar, and he'd go in and ten dollars. Y'all come and see the sex show. It's out in the yard in the motorhome. If what you're hearing sounds like something the local cops might be interested in, well, you'd be right, but probably for the wrong reason. He was at, at this bar putting on a show, 
Two deputies come riding by and they got somebody in the back seat handcuffed that they had arrested for something. <laughs> so they say, oh, here's Ray putting on the show. He let them look at it for nothing. You know, in charge of police. <laughs> so they went in and got so excited about the show, the fella got out of the car and left with the handcuffs on him. They come out, he's gone, and somebody said, I seen him go through them woods over yonder, you know. So they tried to look for him for a while, but they couldn't find him. So they, they knew who he was, so they sent word if he'd bring the handcuffs back, they'd let him go. <laughs> While the deputies might have gotten an eyeful, Leonard Brown says their boss, Sheriff Cash Williams, was not as entertained. The next time Hamby took his sex show on the road, the sheriff and his posse raided the motorhome. The only problem... They didn't know what to charge him with. <laughs> they didn't know what to charge him with. <laughs> there wasn't, apparently, a statute on sex machines made out of power tools. But Hamby went to jail regardless. And while he was there, he apparently developed a grudge. But he got out of jail... And then he was good mad at Sheriff, so he wrote all kind of bad stuff on them outside that, that motorhome, and then he rode around up the courthouse and ever around downtown. It was the stupidest thing. He had women's panties, and he had a barrel on top of it, big old barrel about this small, sitting on top of the thing. He mounted it on top of it. On that barrel, he had a lot of panties and bazaars and things hung <laughs> around the top of it. This was, as near as anyone could tell, some sort of civil disobedience and protest against the sheriff, or something. And in the world of Greenville County politics in the 1970s, Hamby's obscene campaign against the sitting sheriff doesn't even rank in the top 10 most sinister. Sure, Hamby would eventually end up shot dead in the street, but that didn't make him special. It made him another statistic in the 1970s murder capital of South Carolina. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder Etc. It's hard to know what to make of Ray Hamby. You hear stories like the one Leonard Brown tells and you think, well, Ray Hamby sounds like a lunatic. But if you were flipping through the newspapers one day back then, you would have seen Hamby dressed in a suit and an advertisement touting his new book, chronicling the 1976 sheriff's race, titled The World's Wildest Sheriff's Campaign. The ad, which promises the movie will be coming out someday, looks almost professional. But eventually, people got a look at the cover of the book. It features a photo of a shirtless Ray Hamby wearing a particularly startling toupee and a hangman's noose around his neck. Someone doctored the photo, badly, so it appears blood was coming out of Hamby's neck and mouth. I can't tell you what the inside of the book looks like, because I only know of one copy in existence, and the guy who has it won't give it up. Regardless, if you get a look at the book, it might offer some explanation for why the President of the United States didn't send in the cavalry when Hamby wrote a letter begging for federal help in the Southeast's wild, wild west. He showed me a letter he wrote to the president one time. Said, oh, Mr. President, we're having a lot of trouble down here in Greenville, South Carolina. Would you please 
Would you please send somebody down here to straighten things out? <laughs> Crazy or not, Hamby spent the last years of his life, in part, trying to expose Greenville, South Carolina as a town full of corruption and murder. And here's the thing. Of all the ludicrous things Hamby might have said, that part wasn't crazy at all. The big question is why? What turned Greenville into a war zone? How did this place that is so famous for being good today get so damn bad in the 1970s? How long have you been in office now? Two and a half long years. I played part of this radio interview back during episode eight when I introduced you to Sheriff Cash Williams, the man who served as Lieutenant Frank Looper's boss on the day someone shot Looper and his father Rufus inside Looper's garage. I really didn't know what was going on in Greenville County to the extent that crime was quite that heavy. Some people would argue, even after more than two years in office, Sheriff Williams still didn't have a hold on what kind of beast he was trying to wrestle. In fact, it wasn't even clear Williams was even aware which beast he should be wrestling. What is the most serious crime problem facing Greenville County? Well, it'd have to be larceny, because that's the highest number of incidents that we have, and then breaking and entering is number two. That's not wrong, statistically. When it came to stealing, guns, cars, money, pretty much anything, there was no county worse than Greenville in 1975. Nearly 7,000 break-ins, more than 10,000 thefts, nearly 1,500 stolen vehicles, just as many aggravated assaults. Greenville County took first place in every category. But it's sort of amazing anyone noticed, with so many dead bodies lying around. So I was listening to one of the previous episodes. It's funny, they interviewed Cash Williams, and they said, well, Cash, what's the, what's the biggest problem of the time? And he said, well, it's probably larceny or, or, or maybe robbery. Cash, you got 13 bodies laying in ditches throughout your county, man. You're talking about stealing. That's Andy Etheridge, a man who's been studying 1975 Greenville for a long time. And when he talks about 13 bodies, he's not talking for all of 1975. He's talking about the first month of 1975. One day, we were on a research trip to the South Carolina Supreme Court. And Andy started looking at that year and figured most folks had a lot on their mind at the time. In the first months of 1975, America was still at war in Vietnam. It didn't even end until 1975. Those iconic images of them pushing helicopters into the sea and everyone being airlifted out. That was 1975. President Richard Nixon had just resigned in 1974. Heiress Patty Hearst was robbing banks. Americans had just learned the CIA had a domestic spying program. Doctors were going on strike. Oil prices were going through the roof. Unemployment hit 9.2%. And not one, but two different women tried to kill President Gerald Ford. All of that in one year. At home in Greenville County, while some folks were watching their backs, most people had their noses buried in the national news. Just like Greenville County Prosecutor Billy Wilkins said. There were really two Greenvilles here in the up part of the state. If you lived out in Botany Woods or out the Augusta Road area, you didn't know. Those folks didn't know about the very first Greenville County homicide of 1975. In the first week of that year, a black man killed in a horrifying way. 
The first time Andy and I read the 1975 newspapers, we missed the story. Black male found by hunter still unidentified. It's a short story. It goes on to tell you how they had wrapped a, a, a bed spread or something around, tied that up, bound his entire body, doused in gasoline, and thrown in a ditch on a road in Piedmont. Hunters found the body two or three days later. The murder didn't make big headlines. And maybe because it didn't, that case remains unsolved today. The victim never identified. You know, you're opening your paper in Botany Woods or over off Augusta Road. You're right, you're looking for what's going on with the Vietnam Nixon. You know, your eyes don't glance down to the bottom right where it says, unidentified black male, bound, gag, stabbed, doused in gasoline. <laughs> that doesn't draw you quite like these, uh, these other things. You see what you choose to see, or you see what you're looking for. Sheriff Cash Williams sent his men out on the county roads looking for thieves. And the killers stayed busy. 60 murders in one year. In the decade between 1965 and 1975, the United States murder rate had doubled. For the first time ever, the rate of murders was higher than the suicide rate. Academics said where the Great Depression had led to a rash of suicides, the 1970s economy made people turn their guns, not on themselves, but on each other. And nowhere in the country was worse than the South, where 44% of all murders happened. It just goes to kind of tell how bodies are just winding up on the sides of roads throughout Greenville County. And some of them, you don't even know who they are. In 1974, the murder rate in Greenville County was up 18% from the previous year. And in the first four months of 1975, the murder rate in the county was up 80% over 1974. Murder is a legal distinction. A killing isn't officially a murder until cops charge someone with a crime. A homicide, that doesn't require a criminal charge. It just requires one person killing another. After someone killed a black man just after New Year's Day, 1975, the body count kept pace all month with a homicide on average every 55 hours. Greenville County was about to have a problem counting all the bodies. A convenience store robbery, a restaurant robbery, a fight over a woman, a fight between father and son, a gunfight between a deputy and a suspect. There were so many homicide victims in 1975, the Greenville News started to publish a daily tally. Rufus Looper was number 12. Lieutenant Frank Looper, number 13. Their murders ripped into the city of Greenville and exposed things no one wanted to see. But if the people in Greenville County thought it couldn't get worse, they were dead wrong. That is coming up right after this short break. When I launched Murder Etc. in February of 2019, I'd planned to do around 20 episodes and finish in August. I made that guess before listeners started coming out of the shadows to tell what they know. Now, right in the middle of episode 17, it's clear the etc. is much bigger than even I imagined when I started telling this story. Getting to the end will take most of the year, and we could use your help. If you've enjoyed Murder Etc. and you'd like to lend your support to the effort, you can donate at paypal.me slash murderetc. That's paypal.me slash murderetc.
Or if you use Venmo, you can send a donation directly to Murder ETC. We also have a bunch of serious listeners in the Amateurs Etc. group who offer a small monthly donation for insider access, bonus episodes, and more. You can learn more on our website, murderetcpodcast.com. For the men and women in Greenville County law enforcement, the body count had become part of the job. The Looper murders made the work personal. Some deputies put a strip of black tape over their badges to recognize their fellow lawman's death. The city of Greenville had detectives to investigate homicides inside the city limits. County investigators handled those in the unincorporated areas. But on the day of the Looper murders, pictures show city cops, county deputies, and people we don't even know dragging their shoes through the middle of the crime scene. If all of those investigators spent all their time working on just the Looper murders, they still might not have cracked the case. Although Greenville police had a suspect list long enough to field two or three football teams, detectives had almost no physical evidence. The entire time they were trying and failing to solve the case, the killings continued. A stepson killed his stepdad. Two guys shot an old man and left him to die beside his pickup. Another cop killed another suspect. County and city detectives were in the middle of one of their bloodiest years, and by summer, one of Greenville's most famous musicians became one of its most famous victims. You old fireplace, I remember riding by there as a kid all the way up until, it was still there, big, huge rock sign, really cool place, big place, and it was a, basically a steakhouse slash band room. Ye old Fireplace was an old school joint where Charlie Russo played his sax with a big band. Russo was famous at home and all over America. He played with the legendary big band trumpeter Charlie Spivak. They're finishing up a, in the evening and they're all kind of sitting around on a smoking a cigarette. Two guys bust in, you know, just a violent, everybody on the ground, I'll blow your head off. I mean, just pure violence. Folks said Russo was a gregarious guy, not one who would sit idly and wait. They got everybody cornered. I think they sent some people to the walk-in cooler. But Russo, he makes a, a motion. The one guy just shoots him. Russo died inside Yield Fireplace. His murder is still a mystery that haunted the two lead investigators for the rest of their lives. Those two lead detectives, Jim Christopher and Mike Bridges, the same two men who were still trying to solve the Looper murders. The bloody year dragged on. A shooting spree in a bar. A white woman dead in a park, her head caved in by a rock. A black man beaten to death inside an abandoned house. On and on through a hot, sweaty summer. Detectives in the city and county chased, in some cases, killers. And in other cases, their own tales. If anyone thought the cooler weather of autumn would slow the violence, October proved them wrong. Even the people of Greenville, now 10 months into a year of bloody murder, could not ignore what happened then. The same 1975 time frame, killed three young girls, shaved their heads, dumped them in the Reedy River. I mean, a horrendous story. In later years, people called him the Reedy River Killer. His real name was Charles Williams. He doubled as a pimp named Goldie McCrary. And though people still whisper their doubts about the official story, a jury convicted Williams 
of giving the girls lethal doses of drugs, shaving their heads, and dropping them in the Reedy River. That's a case Greenville County never really forgot. When I first moved here in the late 90s, no one told me about Gladys Huff, strangled, shot twice, and left dead with a zippered nylon bag over her head in November of 1975. No one told me about Charlie Russo's unsolved murder, or Frank Looper and his father, murdered in their garage. But I hadn't been here for a couple of weeks before I'd heard about the three girls dumped in the Reedy River. As Andy drove down I-26, we started thinking how the cops must have felt by the end of that bloody year in 1975. The Sheriff's Office and Police Department were not big operations. In 1975 alone, Jim Christopher was investigating the Looper murders and the Charlie Russo killing. He was overseeing the internal investigation of nine officers charged in a burglary ring. And he was heading up the Narcotics and Vice Department for the city. Even if it's tempting to think Jim Christopher spent all his time plotting how to put Charles Wakefield Jr. in prison for the Looper murders, the reality was Christopher had all the powers of law enforcement behind him, but he didn't have any spare time. Just from your perspective, as a guy who is you know, very invested in this particular story that we've been working on, and the amount of time you spend thinking about it and the amount of time you spend working on it. Now imagine, if you're like Christopher at that point, that you've got two of these, and it's your damn job to do it. You know, I can't, I, I can't put myself in that position because I don't know what it would be like. I mean, probably three of the most well-known killings within Greenville's history stacked on top of each other in the same year. I mean, it's hard to imagine the pressure that folks like Christopher were under to get these things closed out. I mean, it, honestly, whether you, you know, there's speculation that these guys were dirty, these guys were not. I, I, who knows if they're I can tell you one thing, they were tired. Tired or not, city cops were largely free of one worry their friends in the county sheriff's office could not ignore. <clears throat> I hope I don't call through this. You actually have very healthy stock. I mean, your father lived well into his 90s. 94, as a matter of fact, yeah. yeah. That is Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown. If the name sounds like a cowboy's, it was in the movies. But the Greenville County Sheriff's name has nothing to do with that. Actually, I was named after my mother's youngest brother, Johnny and a Dr. Macmillan delivered me, and so that's where the Mac came from. My mother always called me Johnny Mac, and it just stuck. You know, I wasn't no kin to the cowboy, and they didn't even know anything about the cowboy back then. Cowboy or not, Johnny Mac Brown is a man of fortitude. I read a story the other day about your grandfather. Your grandfather goes into your father's garage at age 83, puts his car up on a jack, and changes the transmission himself. And there's an entire news story about it. <laughs> Just decided he wanted to do it, and he asked Daddy, he said, you got any space I can put my car in? They actually 85, pulled the transmission out, and fixed it, and put it back in, and said, thank you. Sheriff Brown is his grandfather's grandson, a man who can still do the job in his 80s. The retired sheriff of Greenville County is now the current interim sheriff. Governor Henry McMaster appointed him to the position after suspending the most recently elected sheriff, Will Lewis. He's a man who won the office during the 2016 presidential election after an ugly campaign by the closest of margins and then ended up under indictment for a long list of criminal charges. While everyone waits to see what happens with Will Lewis, Sheriff Brown, nearly two decades after retiring, is again running the show. I came in and it was a total mess. Morale was not good. I can't say anything but nothing but good about the deputies. 
They did their jobs. And so I'm so proud of them that they stayed out of the ruckus between Lewis and his problem. Brown has dealt with Greenville County politics since 1976, the first year he ran for sheriff against Cash Williams. That same race inspired Ray Hamby's book. Johnny Mac Brown's campaign hadn't even started when his young daughter answered the phone at the absolute worst time. My phone rings at home and my uh, daughter answers the phone, my nine-year-old daughter. This voice says, if your husband runs for sheriff, you will be killed and your two children. Well, of course, she went berserk. My wife tried to get me to, don't run. I said, no, I'm going to run. I'm not going to let something like that scare me. This Johnny Mac Brown may not have been a cowboy, but in 1976, he had the boots and stomach for a gunfight. Announced to run the sheriff with snipers on top of the building, making sure my family was protected. And uh, that's an interesting way to start your uh, my campaign. That was my first campaign. That campaign was ultimately a success, and Johnny Mac Brown remained the sheriff until the year 2000. In fact, between 1957 and 2000, 43 full years, Greenville County, South Carolina only had three sheriffs. Bob Martin served as sheriff from 1957 to 1972. Voters elected Johnny Mac Brown in 1976. Stuck in the middle for four of Greenville County's worst years, Cash Williams. Cash Williams came in and had no idea what he was doing as far as law enforcement concerned. Cash Williams did not leave a legacy many people would want to claim. He somehow managed to cram an entire career of scandal into four years as sheriff. So who made the death threat against Johnny Mac Brown? No one who's talking seems to know. In the mid-70s, people were getting murdered on average every week. To make matters worse, if you read the newspapers of the mid-70s, you'd see people publicly accusing Sheriff Cash Williams of plotting to kill them. And even if you don't have an old newspaper, we have Leonard Brown and the tapes he and others recorded back in the 1970s. Oh, George. The day Brown first sat down for an interview with me, this was literally the very first thing he said after I hit the record button. I figured out why uh, the sheriff wanted to go to get Bill Green to shoot and kill me. Leonard Brown is among the people who say Cash Williams, while sitting as sheriff, made attempts to have several people hurt or killed. My captain called me and said, look, the sheriff has tried to get me and Tony to come blow your ass away. Time and time again, word got back to Brown that Cash Williams was plotting to kill him for being a political thorn in his side. This is Brown's son, Leonard Brown Jr. When Cash Williams became sheriff, you know, we thought there was going to be a, a change uh, in the way things were handled. but. Then it got worse. The criminals had largely infiltrated the sheriff's department. They had their own rackets going and could just be a criminal and nobody would do anything about it. Brown did everything he could to get Cash Williams on tape soliciting a crime. Once, he and a newspaper reporter crawled through a field alongside a country road trying to get close enough to Cash Williams' car. And that's when they saw the cop cars coming. We started to haul ass. I said, the hell, he's done. Cash doesn't found out we here, you know. I found out later they done called up her on the call, said somebody messed around behind their house over there. And I said, Dad, what we gonna do if they catch us up here? We had damn tape recorders and that shit loaded up in the woods, you know. They all said, I'm gonna tell them I fell out of a damn airplane. 
Another time, Brown decided he had to control the environment. So he and his team set up at a man's house, a man who said Cash Williams was trying to hire him as a hitman. We'll fix him a meal, put it on the damn table, ready to eat. We gotta have some reason for him to stay there. We'll bug the whole damn house. Whichever room he goes in, we don't matter. <laughs> Brown and his team hid out under the house for hours until they decided Williams wasn't coming. So they went inside and dismantled their eavesdropping equipment. And somebody said, here comes the sheriff up the driveway. Brown's team scrambled. They left a tiny wireless receiver with their source, a man named Steve Burdett, and crawled back under the house. And Cash come in, wanted to go for some ride. Burdett said, I just got my dinner fixed. Let me eat my dinner. Brown says he got a staticky recording of Cash Williams hatching a murder plot and providing a pistol to be used for the job. But Brown says, when he took it all to the solicitor, things did not go as planned. I carried a damn gun over there, here the gun, Tom. Didn't think I could do it, did you? <laughs> you thought I lined it? <laughs> Scared the shit out of Tom. Tried to give him a tape recording, all that shit. You keep it, you keep it. I left. Tom was so scared to death. Nothing came of that recording. Another time, a man named Billy, who once rented a mobile home from Leonard Brown, hopped in Brown's car as Brown's recorder rolled. We gotta say right now, by God, that nobody else don't know about it because we get somebody killed. That's right. I mean, you know what I mean? That's what Billy told his former landlord somebody wanted him beaten up, and that person wanted Billy to do it. What exactly happened? Did Charles McCarter come to you first? Charles McCarter lived in Greenville. He was a family man. His son had a pet monkey that around election time wore a hat supporting George Wallace. McCarter ran for county council, owned a plumbing business, once shot a prowler outside his house, and he was a Shriner. But according to Billy, McCarter was also a man who wanted Billy to take care of business. Now, Billy was telling Leonard Brown, McCarter wanted Brown to get beaten down. Charles, he approached me. He asked what I did in the favor. If you didn't catch that, Billy said a man named Ballard had sent McCarter to him to give Leonard a whooping on behalf of Cash Williams. Ballard George is a name you might recognize from earlier episodes, the man who arranged for the contract murder of Raymond Bugs Hassey. Turns out, Billy George, the storyteller in Brown's car, was Ballard George's nephew. Leonard Brown knew he would need more than the word of Billy George. So he had Billy call up McCarter with a tape recorder rolling. Not anything as I know of. Huh? Not anything as I know of. 
Oh, you just want me to do it just for a sport? Yeah, and if uh, anything comes up, you don't worry, I'll get you out of trouble. Anything's going to do nothing. <laughs> if they do, I'll get you out. <laughs> Come on, man. In other words, you just, you just want me to do it for the heck of it. Yeah. The way Billy told the story, McCarter asked Ballard George to do the sheriff's bidding, and Ballard, a proven fixer, recruited his nephew to do the beating. Billy was not a loyal soldier to Ballard and continued to tape his calls, including one with Uncle Ballard. Hello? Ballard? Yeah. Charles crazy as hell, ain't he? Oh, hell. Well, uh, I called him just now, you know. Uh, I asked about that. What you call it? Yeah. And uh, did he was still want me to get lettered. Yeah. And uh, he said, uh, uh, yeah, I said, uh, uh, I told him, uh, I said, yeah, you still want me to get a little brown for cash? Yeah. And uh, he said, no, nah, I said, uh, get it for me. They want to see something done, but they don't want to be involved in things. Yeah. If they got something me, I want to be involved. That kind of teed me off, child. I mean, yeah. I, I get uh, started on something. I don't like to get pulled off. Uh, why, why do you say they got to get Slitter Brown so much about it? Well, I've done that. He's been with them making that preacher. Preacher. Oh, well, we're in the low, uh, uh, community. Yeah. 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 And he's been right up there bopping off his mouth. If you missed it, Ballard George said the Leonard Brown beatdown would be repayment for Brown's association with that preacher boy, otherwise known as the Reverend Larry Atkins, publisher of a local newsletter turned newspaper that attacked Cash Williams in print on a regular basis. Atkins was rumored to have naked pictures of the sheriff clutching himself with his Shriner ring clearly exposed. Got to the point, as you know, that uh, you know the sheriff of Greenville County conspired to kill. Larry Atkins. And there are plenty of people walking around today who have first-hand knowledge of that. You know, a lot of people were afraid to do anything about it. You, didn't, you never knew what these guys were going to do to you. Atkins spent many years and gallons of ink attacking Sheriff Williams. And when he wasn't preaching the gospel, he was listening to a congregation of sources in Greenville County. This is Atkins' actual voice. There must be several involved in it. One day, Atkins took a call at his office. And the caller said he had information on a cold case, the brutal beating, robbery, and murder of another preacher named Duck Finley. I, I believe I got enough proof on a man that he had a preacher stand to kill. Atkins started taking notes. Do you have uh, any names? And hearing a story about the preacher's murder, two gunmen from New Orleans, a $30,000 robbery. The caller said he thought he knew who arranged it all. It's, uh, it's my brother who it is. My brother runs a wheel allowance shop over here in the Union Bleachers. This caller said, brother or not, he couldn't in good conscience keep quiet. And he didn't trust the sheriff's office with the information. When it comes to taking a man's life for money, that's absolutely. It's not right for him to get it anyway, but you start uh, taking a life for money, that's, that's not ain't nothing right about that at all. That caller's name was Furman. Furman George. I mean, he's my brother and don't mean no harm, but uh, he'd make a dollar any way he can make it. I mean, that's the mm. kind of fella he is. He don't care who it hurts, uh, nothing about it. Mm. That's Ballard George. Ballard George, yeah. Right. Yeah, but he, he'll just make a dollar any way he can make a dollar. To help you connect the dots, Furman George was trying to implicate his own brother, Ballard, in a robbery and murder. Ballard was the same man his nephew Billy said was helping Cash Williams arrange a beatdown on Leonard Brown. 
Neither of those two accusations resulted in criminal charges, so it's impossible to say if Cash Williams was working to solve his problems through underworld back channels and Ballard George. But this we know. When contract killer Frank Walker gave his confession in the 1975 Bugs Hassey murder, he said Ballard George arranged the whole thing. It's no real surprise that Frank Walker also said Ballard George was planning another contract killing. The intended victim? Ballard's brother, Furman George. Unlike a lot of people, Sheriff Cash Williams' most vocal critic lived through 1975. Ray Hamby lived long enough to write his book about the 1976 election. But in 1977, he was riding in a car with a man named Billy George. They were on Washington Street in downtown Greenville when a man named Wolf walked up to their car and started shooting. Wolf Mathis was a guy a lot of people liked. He was the bar owner who gave Fast Eddie Williamson his nickname. The details are sketchy, and I've heard a lot of stories about why Wolf started shooting, but I really don't know, and the people who do aren't talking. Motive aside, Wolf Mathis killed Ray Hamby that night, and Billy George hopped out of the car with a shotgun and killed Wolf. Billy shot him over the top of the car. He was on one side, shot Ray. Billy gets out and shoots him across the car. But I don't think Billy got no time for it. Cops initially charged Billy George with murder, but he didn't do any time. Ray Hamby and Wolf Mathis were just another couple of bodies in the street, lost in a decade of murder, tragedy, and ruin that seemed to defy any reasonable explanation. If I were an economist, I might tell you that the recession and unemployment turned 1975 upside down in Greenville County. If I were a sociologist, I might tell you the people of 1975 were suffering from economic anxiety and turned on each other with Saturday night specials just to ease their own suffering. I'm not an economist and I'm not a sociologist. I'm a journalist. And when I try to find some sort of rhyme or reason for why 1975 was such a horror show, I end up thinking about Donald Peewee Gaskins. If you listen to episode 16, the one about life behind the wall at CCI prison, you heard about Gaskins, South Carolina's most notorious serial killer. Two dudes riding around in a truck with a microphone. We don't have the firepower to do that. Andy Etheridge and I got to talking about Gaskins in the truck because that year Greenville County was the murder capital of South Carolina. And those folks in West Greenville, Botany Woods, and Augusta Road were all living through the year their county was the bloodiest it might ever be. That year, the dude folks called America's meanest man was burying bodies all over the state. There didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to Gaskins' crimes. Gaskins was just mean and heartless. The last time he killed, Gaskins was already in prison and acting on behalf of a grieving family, upset a killer had escaped the death penalty. Gaskins had a plan. This is his voice. I need one electric cap and as much of a stick of damn dynamite as you can get. Okay, well, I'll probably get at least plastic explosion. Well, that'd be good. Gaskins packed a bunch of explosives into a cup, and he told his target, the cup is a radio-style intercom to chat between the cells. Put the cup up to your ear and listen. And then, boom. Then he goes and rigs the radio and blows the guy's head off. 
It doesn't matter if you're an economist, sociologist, or journalist. It's impossible to account for that kind of meanness. It's just as hard to account for how murderous and terrible all of Greenville County was in 1975. Lieutenant Frank Looper knew. He knew there were people around him in the community he policed, and maybe closer to him than anyone could imagine, people who would kill to get what they wanted. They'd kill a saxophone player. They'd kill three girls and dump them in the river. They'd kill a man trying to get drugs off the streets. Frank Epps Jr. was heading off to college back then. His dad was the judge who presided over the Looper murder trial and sent Charles Wakefield Jr. to the electric chair. Frank Jr. thinks back, and he can't quite wrap his head around exactly why everything happened as it did. But he believes, after Frank and Rufus Looper died, nothing was ever the same. The case was a, I don't know, it was, it was a linchpin of the calendar in Greenville. I don't know what it signified or what it didn't signify, but, you know, you feel like, as somebody who grew up then, I feel like that period of time and what was going on then, everything changed dramatically after that, it seemed. Everything about Greenville changed. Epps can't account for it. Maybe no one can. Greenville had a problem, a murder problem. Maybe it was the economy. Maybe it was the drugs and organized crime. Maybe it was one gigantic cocktail of poisons mixed together in the deadliest way. And maybe the county's top law enforcement officer was asleep at the wheel. Prior to this, you, you had no real law enforcement experience, did you? That's right. All right, what has been your biggest surprise in that two and a half long years? Well, I think probably the fact that I was so naive to how much crime was going on in Greenville County. Or maybe it was something else. Something else like the stories Larry Atkins and Leonard Brown told. Maybe some people with the power to stop murders use that power to plan them. A couple of years into Cash Williams' term, one of Sheriff Bob Martin's former deputies called on his old boss. Hey, is this Mr. Martin? Yes. Is Mr. Martin there? No, he isn't. Oh, this is Billy. Ledbetter? Uh-huh. I just want to talk to him a while. I... Billy, he left this morning about 10.30 and has gone to Tennessee. He's got a horse racing Thursday and one Friday. Y'all doing all right? Pretty good. He's been working hard fixing fences and repairing machinery and following corn. He says he... He says that kind of work, it tires you out, but it doesn't kill you. <laughs> it was gallows humor from a woman whose husband had survived as a lawman for 15 years. Does he feel safe out there working in the field with this new sheriff we got? <laughs> well, I tell you. Well, there's a lot of people want that man back. <laughs> oh, Lord, well, Billy, I'll tell you what. Well, let me ask you something, Billy. Maybe I ain't supposed to be asking this. Somebody had said that Cash Williams tried to hire somebody to, to shoot him. He did. Huh? He did. Is that true? Sure. Oh, I don't want to. Ain't that something? Despite the public, private, and secret allegations that Cash Williams tried to use hired killers to deal with his political problems, despite all the newspaper articles and investigations, as far as the public record is concerned, Cash Williams may have been an ineffective sheriff, 
but he wasn't a criminal. Cash Williams never faced any criminal charges. Never served any time at all, in fact. Ain't that something? Thanks for listening to this episode of Murder, Etc. Before I sign off, I want to mention something I'm really grateful for. Just before this episode came out, I wrote an extended personal essay for The Bitter Southerner on how Murder, Etc. became a podcast. I've written a couple of stories for that online magazine, but it means a lot to me that Chuck Reese and The Bitter Southerner team care enough about this story to share it with their huge audience. Thank you all. If you're listening in the first week of August 2019, you can go directly to bittersouthern.com and my essay will be right on the front page. If you're listening later, just Google Bitter Southerner and my name, Brad Willis, to find that feature and everything else that I've written there. Finally, before I go, I need to say thanks to one of our Amateurs Etc. VIP investigators, Eric Ramsey, who not only offered a very generous monthly donation to Murder Etc., but he's also done some great legwork trying to help me answer some questions about an old Western Union telegram that might end up playing a role in this story. If you want to help out like he did, or get involved yourself, just look at the front page of our website, murderetcetrapodcast.com. While you're doing that, we're going to be working on episode 18, which is coming out soon. Here's a preview. While the homicide detectives chased their tails and the sheriffs dealt with politics, while the Looper family and their friends grieved and Charles Wakefield sat behind bars, the South's most notorious bank robbery gang made bank. And guess what? This call is from a federal prison. It's time you hear that part of the story. This call is from... Eddie Williamson. From someone who was there. Good morning, Brad. That's coming up on the next Murder, Etc.